lovers, welcome to Get Real, a podcast hosted by the National Animal Interest Alliance through which we'll have deeply honest conversations about animal research so we can learn together and make compassionate choices about our medical future together. Welcome to episode 26 of Get Real. I'm Dr. Cindy Buckmaster, your host for Get Real. And today we're going to talk about what may be the number one reason for why more than half of the research findings from animal studies are questionable. The animals on study are hardly ever as healthy as we think. And you can't get clean results from dirty research models. How do we get here? And what's the solution moving forward? Dr. Ken Henderson, Senior Director for Laboratory Services with Charles River Laboratories, will break it down for us today on Get Real. Thank you for joining us today, Ken, on Get Real. I'm super excited about our conversation today because I think our listeners, both those in research and lab animal and our listeners who are unfamiliar with the field, are going to find what you have to share with us today to be very interesting, but also very kind and very responsible, and very ethical. And of course, that's what the Raw Truth series is all about. Thanks for welcoming me here today for this. I'm really excited about this conversation. Super. Well, let me set this up a little bit for our listeners, because I'm sure there are people listening who have never seen research animals, you know, in a vivarium and these facilities that I keep talking about. Over 95% of the animals that are part of biomedical research are mice. And the U.S. government spends literally billions of dollars on biomedical research with animals annually. So these are super valuable models for the study of health and disease. And one thing I think that people don't think about is we have to make sure that they're healthy. And it's not just that they are healthy, you know, so that they don't get sick and then pass away and we can't use them in a study. It's also the case that they could be infected with something that doesn't manifest itself clinically, right? We won't even know they're sick. But if they are harboring one of these germs or microbes or what we're going to call pathogens, that pathogen that we may not see clinically could also impact the research findings, right? So the government's spending all this money on these research models, and we need to make sure that they all stay healthy. Now, why is that complicated? Well, it's complicated because there are so many of them. Again, for the folks that haven't seen, let's say, mice specifically in a research setting, they typically live in a cage that is sort of its own little environment. It has a filter top, and we call that a micro-isolator. So they're sort of protected in this little space from external pathogens. And we put these micro-isolators then on large racks. They can be seven rows higher or higher. They can hold seven cages across each row or more, depending on the rack type. And so they can hold hundreds of animals. And these micro-isolators can be static enclosed with a filter top and breathing their own air. Or the more common way to house mice these days is on something we call an IVC rack, which stands for individually ventilated caging, right? So in this case, each cage has its own air feed that's getting filtered and cleaned. So we go to a lot of lengths to keep these animals clean and separate from pathogens that may be in the environment. But that's not good enough. We have to verify, right? We need to know. And the government's spending billions of dollars on this in the hopes that the information we get from these animals will tell us a lot about how the body works and also inform us about how diseases come to be and how we might come up with some therapeutic intervention to cure them. So we've got to really screen them constantly to ensure that they're healthy. 
So on this rack that has all of these mice, there is also generally a cage or two of very healthy mice. And their job is to screen for pathogens that all these other mice on the rack may have been exposed to. And there are a couple of ways that that's been done traditionally. And so I think it'd be great for you to break down for us how this really works with the sentinels and this traditional methodology of testing sentinels to screen for pathogens that all the other mice on the rack may have been exposed to. I started at Charles River back in 1993, and when I showed up, at that point, soil bedding sentinels were the main method that people used to screen their animals for pathogens. This method, it really did rely on the transmission of these infectious agents to that soil bedding sentinel. They would start with that clean animal, as you described, and then either on a weekly or a biweekly time period, they would transfer soil bedding from the study animals to this cage with the very clean animal. And after a period of time of doing this, and usually it's every three months, those sentinel animals then were evaluated for their health. And so these sentinels then would be evaluated by multiple methods of testing. One is called serology, where you look for antibodies to see if they were infected with any viruses that they had obtained from the other animals on the rack. Bacteriology, they would look for bacteria by trying to culture bacteria that may have colonized those animals as well. And then lastly, uh, parasitology and protozoology. They would look at the contents of the intestinal tract, maybe look through the fur itself to see and make sure that they haven't been infested by either fermites or pinworms or other agents. So it's a pretty intense process to look at soiled bedding sentinels. Right. And so I just want to make sure it's clear for our listeners. So basically, you have these very healthy animals and they get to live in a filthy cage because a lot of these things are transmitted through the feces, right? When you're changing cages for the animals on the rack, you deliberately take the dirtiest part of that bedding and you put it in an empty cage and you fill this cage up then with samples of dirty bedding from a particular amount of animals on the rack. And then your healthy animals go live in that. In this way, they're sort of exposed to everything that every animal in that sample lot was exposed to. And like you say, they run around in this stuff for three months. And the idea literally is to expose them to as much as you can so that if there's something near you'll find it in these healthy animals. That environment there, you know, you almost also rely on those coprophage practices. Coprophage is a fancy word for eating poop. My beagle does uh, it. Yep. It's nasty. Anyway, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> but there's a real reliance on those animals to get into the material and to still get those agents so they can become infected or colonized. Uh, but after you get these results, you'll send them off to a laboratory, the sample types. Sometimes you actually ship the entire animal to those laboratories. So those animals have to be shipped up in boxes and sent through our transport systems, live animals. So you just hope that you know everything goes well during that part of the process. So when the animals or the samples arrive at the laboratory, they're processed by the methods I described. And then the report goes out to the clients. The report will tell them the list of the agents or what the laboratory has found and any concerns. And not all agents are equal. Some are opportunistic agents where maybe you don't really care about them if they're in a immunocompetent animals that have a full immune system and they're not going to produce disease. But there are others that are more impactful. You know, viruses, they are what we call an obligate intercellular parasite. So they go inside these cells and they really destroy the cell functions, which isn't great for research. And the goal here is to try to determine what is present and whether or not those agents may have an impact on a set of experiments. They may not always be a big impact, but even a slight impact could change the data set and give you the wrong information during a research project. Right. You know, we keep talking about the reproducibility crisis. And so the screening is really critical for that. So we really need to get it right. It has to be as strong and as accurate as possible in order for us to be able to depend on the information that comes from these animals. This actually has been your role for quite a while. You are the person that receives animals and does these evaluations. 
Yeah. Our role is to provide quality control, uh, not only for our company, Charles River, but also for companies that rely on life sciences, um, you know, biotech industry, the pharmaceutical industry, and, and academia. They all rely on screening their animals for pathogens to make sure that their research is sound and, as you mentioned, reproducible. Right. That makes perfect sense. All right. So now we have these healthy animals that get exposed to bedding and we call them soil bedding sentinels. But you can also just put healthy animals right directly in the cage. Yeah. It's called contact sentinels. And that practice was probably used most with a process called quarantine. I think after COVID, everybody is familiar with quarantine. We do the same thing with research animals. When research collaborators are sharing animals around the country or around the world, they want to make sure that when those animals arrive, they're free of infectious agents. Because if you brought those animals into your facility alongside of other animals, those agents could transmit to those other animals on the rack. And so a quarantine is used to evaluate those animals before you bring them into your research colony. One of the best traditional methods for quarantine is to place an animal in direct contact with these animals coming in from other institutions or research collaborators. And they would be in there in contact for a period of time to see if they were shedding something, those animals coming in, then the idea is that it would transmit to the contact sentinel in the same cage. And, and similar to soil bedding sentinels, after a period of time, I mean, for quarantine, it may be a period of six weeks or eight weeks or a little longer. You would then submit those animals for evaluation to see if they had acquired any infectious agents from those animals coming in from another facility. And then you would know not to release them to the research colony until you could clear that, right? Yeah, you know, either through treatments or sometimes you have to clean up the animals through placing embryos or doing other types of re-derivation processes. The question is, for those research facilities bringing in animals, when they do arrive, is the method that you're using adequate? for testing because soil bedding sentinels are actually also commonly used, in fact, actually more commonly used than contact sentinels. So they would just take the soil bedding from those animals that come in and place those with soil bedding sentinels. The problem with both is that contact sentinels, when you put the animals in contact, not all animals like to be in contact with new animals. Um, and so you might have bullying, you might have fighting among those animals. And these precious animals that you may have received from another institution could uh, end up being attacked by the sentinels that you put in the cage in the first place. The other thing, of course, that could happen is unexpected pregnancy. And if you have a very special line of animals, the last thing you want to do is accidentally contaminate your genetic line with a contact sentinel. And then soil bedding sentinels, we'll talk about that a little bit later about the challenge with that. Uh, but soil bedding sentinels had probably been more commonly used for monitoring animals coming in or for quarantine than contact sentinels, just because of the fighting and pregnancy concerns that might occur. Well, and just the numbers, right? I mean, you'd have to have a whole lot of these sentinel animals if you're going to put one in every cage, right? Uh, compared to a soil bedding sentinel situation where you're just collecting dirty bedding from all of these other cages and putting it in with the animal. But either way, this seems like a ton of animals being used for this screening. How many mice participate as sentinels? Back in 2008, when we were first starting to look at the use of soil bedding sentinels, we estimated that globally, somewhere between 750,000 and a million soil bedding sentinel rodents that could be rats as well, are used for monitoring for infectious agents. That's really a fairly big number. And a lot of that was because you needed multiple animals for each side of an IVC rack that you mentioned earlier. That's a lot of animals. And let's get into what I thought I heard you say, right? You were hinting at the fact that this may not even be a very reliable way to screen for all of these pathogens. 50 years ago, we were still asking the question, should we be using even soil bedding sentinels? And what was interesting about that, it was just adopted. There was really very little data to support the use of soil bedding sentinels. It was just a method that you could use where you didn't have to sacrifice your research animals to determine whether or not they were exposed to infectious agents. It seems like it would be a clever idea, <laughs> right? 
But throughout most of my career, this is how we did health surveillance. Uh, this is how we screened for pathogens with soil bedding sentinels. And I think a lot of people are still doing that because people get used to doing something a certain way, and then they just keep doing it that way, even though we're using so many animals. And even though there are now newer ways for a screening for these pathogens, people are still doing it. Talk to us a little bit about how things have evolved, you know, from the soil bedding sentinels, right? I mean, we're starting to move away from soil bedding testing. Talk to us about that. Well, it, it really started with bringing in PCR. And PCR, by the way, stands for the polymerase chain reaction. It was a technology a method that was developed back in the mid-80s. And it really hadn't been integrated into lab animal medicine for routine testing for pathogens because we already had a method that people used. They were comfortable with it. There was no problems with it that we knew about. And PCR method uh, that we we're using really didn't start getting used until we started looking at an organism called Helicobacter. And this organism could not easily be cultured by bacteriology, but it was in huge copy numbers in the gut when an animal was infected. And so it made it a very easy target for PCR. And so PCR kind of had a slow start in the mid-90s when this organism started becoming popular. But it wasn't until later on, I'd say around 2004, 2006, where we started looking at a high throughput method because we started looking for more and more different agents by PCR. And that method allowed us to test for many agents at the same time. And we started asking the question, well, what could, we, what could we do with this technology? During a study with Mimi Crawley at Boston University, we decided to look at a potential for a replacement of soil bedding sentinels for quarantine by using this platform. They carried out their normal quarantine by using soil bedding sentinels. And then at that point, they only sent us fecal pellets. And we found found that there were a few agents that were completely under their radar that they were not detecting in soil bedding sentinels, but we were picking up consistently by PCR. So that really put in my mind that we had a problem with soil bedding sentinels. And we took that a step further and we did a larger study. If you go to the pet store, uh, you can buy pet shop mice there. But if you go to a breeder, a lot of times mice are used as a food source for snakes and maybe for other animals. These breeders, you know, they don't follow the same biosecurity measures that we might in a research vivarium. So you might have feral mice that are going in and out of their production rooms that they have. And so it perpetuates infections, uh, many different infectious agents. We've detected as many as 60. So they're great models to look at many different infectious agents at the same time. So we did a study where we used pet shop animals as our make-believe quarantine animals. And we did contact sentinels, but we also took the soil bedding to soil bedding sentinel cages. And when we looked at that, we found there was a dramatic failure soil bedding sentinels to pick up agents such as pinworms, fermites, many bacteria, several viruses. And so it identified a real problem. What was also interesting in that study is that we used one third of the soil bedding that went into each sentinel cage. So we used a lot of soil bedding from those animals. In the real world, and you kind of hit on it a little bit earlier, Cindy, when you have a rack of animals, you may have 90 to 100 cages. And so you can only get maybe a small tablespoon of each bedding from all these cages. And you, you, know, you hope you're getting the right materials and getting into that soil to bedding sentinels. The process is even more challenging because there are many agents, especially respiratory agents, that do not transfer well to soil bedding sentinels. Even though the viruses may make it there, they're no longer infectious. Uh, agents such as fermites. Why would you jump off your host if you were enjoying life on your host? So you really didn't have fermites that would transfer readily to soil bedding sentinels. It would take a long time. So there are just a long list of agents that did not transfer to soil bedding sentinels in our published study. And so we continue to ask the question, so what do we do now? We've got a problem. How do we solve it? And uh, I was actually contacted back, I think it was 2000. 
2010-2011 by a gentleman named Eric Jensen, a veterinarian at the Medical College of Wisconsin. And he told me that he was using our fermite PCR assay to detect fermites on their IVC rack. And I said, what? He said, yeah, we're just taking the same swabs we're using to swab the animals for uh, sampling, but instead we're looking at the dust that's coming off of their IVC rack at the end. And it's providing a very sensitive method for looking for that. And so we did some work with them and actually published on that. But you can imagine, Cindy, that when we were going through this process, in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, if this works well for fermites, how does it work for everything else? And so whenever we'd find interesting positives for client samples, we would call them and say, hey, you know, we're working on a, a method. You know, do you mind swabbing your plenums and sending it to us? In all these cases, we started finding agents that these clients never knew they had on their racks. A long laundry list of agents that they thought didn't exist in their research colonies, but in fact, they did because they were using soil dining sentinels. You know, so that really kind of was the beginning of something that we started calling exhaust air dust testing. And basically, it's any method for collecting dust downstream from these housing units to be able to collect a sample that could be used for PCR testing. And at first, it started off with the swabs, but then we started working with manufacturers of IVCs to determine whether or not a media or a filter could be placed downstream of all the cages. So instead of having to monitor the rack using soil bedding sentinels, you could just put a piece of media or filter in a holder, then pull it out, and then just submit that for testing. And we were finding so much more. And I'll say that many of these IVC rack producers worked with us to help identify you know, where would the dust collection work best for a filter. They worked internally with their engineers to design holders for these media. And they really turned out to be a great system. And to this day, uh, exhaust air dust testing really works really well for those racks. There is a caveat though. This method, EAD, didn't work for all IVC rack types. Although we had a solution for some, we didn't have a solution for all. And so it kept us looking. Another method that we looked at was called sentinel cage filter testing. And this was kind of our quasi method for EAD, where we relied on the actual soiled bedding that was being sent to the sentinel cage. We would rely then on that mouse to uh, agitate that bedding and that bedding dust would rise up eventually and get caught on that filter on the sentinel cage. And so rather than having to test the animal, we could test the filter on that cage. There was still a problem there is that every cage type was a little different. Sometimes it was hard to get the filter off the cages. And so it didn't really catch on. And so that kind of created a problem. How do you make a universal method for using PCR to monitor mice on those cages that do not accommodate the exhaust air dust testing? There was a publication, uh, I'd say three or four years ago by Captain O'Connell at Tennessee Health Science Center. And they decided they were just going to throw media right into the bedding. And they just agitated like a stirring process where they would take that media and put it into soiled bedding. And it worked pretty well. The data on there was great. The challenge we had still though, was that there hadn't been a lot of effort at this point to look at what media worked best to collect dust particles. You know, how long do you have to expose it? And plus it was a smaller list of agents. And we really wanted to do a deeper study and try to develop a process that could be universal for all cage types and allow us to improve pathogen detection. And so we brought in our favorites, right? The pet shop animals. They have everything under the sun. And you know, some people have a different saying for this, but you could say, you know, life is like a uh, pet shop mouse. You never know what you're going to get. And so we did what we did before, where we kind of created a routine health monitoring situation. And we tested them at the very beginning to see what they were shedding. And we also put a contact sentinel in with a cage. Then we used very clean soiled bedding sentinels. So these animals are raised in plastic bubbles and they're free of all excluded agents in Research 5 area. 
And so we went through the process as if it was a research colony. We would collect the soiled bedding from the pet shop animals, mix it with clean bedding, a certain amount. So we would come up to about a 15 or 17% soiled bedding content. And then we would place the media into a box, take the soiled bedding and place that with the media. The box is set up so the lid does not come off easily. So it allows you to really agitate and shake the bedding. And you only have to do it for about 15 to 20 seconds. Then you would take the media out, put it on a clean piece of paper or put it on the hood of this box, discard that soiled bedding. And then you would do that again at each cage change. You put all the dirty bedding in there. You shake and bake, right? Shake, 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 shake. 15 seconds, shake, shake, shake. Then you take this sheet out, this media, and then you throw out the dirty bedding and you put the media back and you close it up. And now you're going to wait for the next time you add more dirty bedding. So this thing is going to get exposed repeatedly, just like our sentinel mice would, only it's not a mouse. That's a great way of thinking about it. Instead of putting a mouse in the cage, you would put this media in the cage. So at the end of three months, we took the media, put it in a tube, and sent it off to our PCR laboratory. And soil bedding sentinels went off to our group to evaluate by all the different methods I described earlier. But we also included PCR. So we did all those other methods plus PCR to look for these agents. There were 42 different infectious agents that we found uh, in the pet shop animals. 31 of those agents transferred to the contact sentinel. Those are the animals in the same cage. However, the soil bedding sentinels detected only 10 agents. Wait a minute. So that's only 25% of the infectious agents that were actually there. That's correct. Pathogen binder materials that we have designed at Charles River detected almost everything that was detected in the contact sentinels. So using mice to screen for pathogens sounds like yesteryear's way of doing this. It doesn't work very well, right? We're wasting animal lives. You know, and this new pathogen binder technology that you've developed, which replaces the need for mice to do this in a much better way, seems like the way to go. It's not just that we're protecting animals from getting sick and dying, and then they're not part of the study and we lose data, right? Sometimes they can be infected with something that we don't even know about, and that something can change the nature of the outcome of the data. So you need to know that these animals don't have these things, and so you have to have the strongest methodology for detecting it. It's also sounding to me like this has to be a much more affordable way to do this than to use contact sentinels or useless soil bedding sentinels. That's just wasting money. This technology, the pathogen binder technology, is truly universal because now it doesn't matter what kind of cage. You just take the dirty bedding, you toss it in a box, you expose this strip to all the pathogens, you send it off for PCR testing, and you get a very accurate profile of what it is your research animals have been exposed to. Now, let me ask you a question. I know that this is a relatively new technology that Charles River has developed, and I think it's amazing. I think everybody should start using it right away. And you have several institutions trialing this so that you can collect more information. Can you tell us a little bit about how many institutions are are actually trialing this and what kind of feedback you're getting from these folks? We currently have over 175 different institutions that have trialed or are in the process of trialing this method right now. But so far, the feedback and the data that we've seen from clients who have shared it with us has been consistent with what our study had shown. They were finding more agents by pathogen binder compared to their soil bedding sentinel systems. Phenomenal. Let me ask you something. Um, I'm sure there are people listening right now that might be interested in trialing this. How do they get in on this trial? If you go to the Charles River website, and by the way, pathogen binder is one word and it's spelled just like it sounds, uh, it'll ask if you want to trial it. And so there's a form there so we can provide you with the materials. Or if you're not ready for trial and you just want to read about it, we have an extended length webinar that is on that site. We have a shorter version from a conference at ALAS. And then if you really want to get into details, we have a white paper there that has the study design and a large amount of data from the study. 
I strongly encourage, I'm almost begging everybody who is still trapped in the, this is the way we've always done it. We have to do soil bedding sentinels. This is how we do it. You got to stop. It's not good for science. It's not good for animals. And most importantly, it's not good for those patients who are waiting for effective treatments. We've got to do better. We've got to do better by animals. We've got to do better by our patients. So I just, I applaud this technology. I think it's amazing, easy to use. I'm super excited about it. I think it's groundbreaking, to be honest with you. Um, before we close, I just want to ask you, you know, is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners, right? Anything else you'd like them to consider about why this technology is so important for our animals and our patients? You know, the lab animal community uh, really supports a philosophy called the three R's, and that stands for uh, replace animals when they're not required, reduce animals when you don't need many statistically, and refine. Make sure the process is giving you the data that you need or that the animals have a better life. Within Charles River, we started talking about a fourth R, and that fourth R is responsibility. For us, it's replacement. You know, if there's an, an animal-free method that is equivalent or better than a method that relies on these animal models, the animal-free method should be used. And I, I got to say, uh, this hasn't been an easy road either. I mean, when I first started coming out with exhaust air dust testing, you know, there were a lot of people that were skeptical about it. I doubted myself sometimes, like, you know, what am I doing? You know, everybody else seems to think that I'm crazy on this. But the more we looked at it, the more the data really supported the use of these alternative methods. And I really think between exhaust air dust testing and, and pathogen binder, we've got methods now that can resolve all of these past issues that we've seen with soil bedding sentinels. And, you know, anything we can do to reduce the number of animals used in research is very important. This has been my uh, favorite part of this process over the last 12 or 15 years is identifying a problem and really resolving it, not just resolving it by improving pathogen detection, but eliminating the need for live research animals. Well, I couldn't agree more. And I appreciate all of your efforts so very much. It has been a pleasure speaking with you today, Dr. Ken Henderson. Thanks again for sharing your journey with us through this process. And thanks for making it available. Now everybody just needs to grab it and go. Thank you very much, Cindy. Appreciate it. The most dangerous phrase in the English language is we have always done it this way. Admiral Grace Hopper, a pioneer of computer programming, said this back in the 1970s. She was urging people to accept new technologies in order to adapt to the rapid changes happening around them. And she was right. Complacency is dangerous, and we should jump at every opportunity we have to do things better, especially when human and animal lives are at stake. If you want to learn more about Pathogen Binder, you'll find all the links you need on the episode response page for this episode on our website at getrealpodcast.info. And while you're there, please click on the support link and commit to a small monthly donation. We still have a lot to talk about, and I appreciate your engagement. I'm Dr. Cindy Buckmaster, your host for Get Real. Thanks for joining us today. Up next, what happens to research animals when the studies are over? Find out on the next episode of Get Real. We'll talk soon.